2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com Daily bonuses are
0: waiting No purchase necessary Void were prohibited by law 18 plus Terms and conditions apply See website for details Welcome to the new books network
2: the expansion of space travel is much discussed but always seems subject to delay. Why is that and when will it happen on a much larger scale? Well, Douglas Le Gore has been considering that issue. He works for the RAND Corporation, which has just issued uh, a large report on this, taken uh, over a year to come up with its research results. Uh, so first of all, welcome to you. Good to be here, Owen. Thanks for having me and just to, to yeah you know, for people who aren't following this like you do obviously week by week or day by day uh, where have we got to in in space travel basically some rich people are going up into space but uh, not many basically that's where we've that's 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 where we've got to so far
1: yes that's correct so we've gotten to the point where you know there's between 30 and, and 60 folks that have either gone to space or are scheduled to to go to space who are basically civilians. They're, they're not military, um, and they're not uh, working for a government.
2: Do they go to space or just to the edge of space? I think it's the distinction between orbital and suborbital.
1: That's correct. So it depends on which company they're going with. Virgin Galactic is currently doing suborbital flights. Other companies are doing uh, or- orbital flights, which is slightly higher higher
2: altitude. Right. And is that, I mean, tell us about the significance of that difference in terms of the technology.
1: Well, it's basically a design difference with the with, with craft. So um, you have a very different design for Virgin Galactic. It looks somewhat like a, an aircraft, something you would, you know, that would have aeronautic controls as opposed to something that maneuvers in space where there's no air. Um, the other crafts from the, from you know Boeing and and, and SpaceX, um, they tend to look more like your standard capsule type vehicles that maneuver without the use of, of any air uh, what, whatsoever.
2: I see. So so well, let's just talk through because it's it is striking as you've already sort of implied there that there are so many people doing this because it must be ferociously expensive to, you know. be be innovating in this in this area and yet lots of people are and you know commercial companies so let's just run through them and you can just if you can just sort of bring me up to date with what they're doing so first of all spacex
1: yeah, so SpaceX is probably leading the, uh, the charge in terms of their um, their technical capability and uh, the number of vehicles and, and launches that they are engaged in. They've you know sent up uh, a, a number of a, a number of uh, individuals, again, well-heeled individuals who can afford to pay for this kind of experience.
2: Right, and and what w- what else are SpaceX doing? So SpaceX is a
1: a company that's involved both in government contracting with respect to sending up all kinds of different space objects, satellites, but they also are involved in the commercial satellite business. So they're sending up what's called mega constellations, which is a large grouping of very small satellites called CubeSats. So SpaceX is really um, one of the companies that's uh, across the, the domain, commercial, government, and you know, on the commercial side, they're both looking at uh, commercial satellites and telecommunications, and also uh, participant
2: commercial participant space flight. Right, and, and um, am I right in thinking they've also done government space flights, if you like, it, it, taking people up yes. for the government?
1: Yes, so they ferry uh, individuals or have ferried individuals to the International Space Station. So again, that would be part of their government contract side of the house.
2: Which is very interesting, given what you've specialized in, which is the regulations surrounding all of this, because I can't imagine the government would have let... Uh, spacex take their people up unless they were pretty confident about safety standards and so on so we'll talk about that a, a little later on but just running through the companies just now that's um that's musk right It with spacex and then you've got branson with virgin galactic what because they've had real problems so to take us through their their history and where they've got to
1: Virgin Galactic again. They've focused on suborbital space flight. They've had uh, they had a crash in 2014. There were no there were no commercial uh, for for higher individuals on that on that flight. There was just the co-pilot and and the pilot. One died. and One was injured. So they've had a couple of setbacks. But you know more recently. Branson himself uh, went up into space with several individuals um, in their planning, planning another flight as as well.
2: So they, you know,
1: they they appear to be back on track in terms of trying to compete for this uh, commercial space.
2: And I thought Virgin had pulled out of one aspect of this. Virgin
1: has, uh, like SpaceX, they have um, several divisions, and one of one of their divisions, with respect to uh, to to launching satellites, has had difficulties.
2: Okay, so that's the satellite business, not the passenger business, as it were. Uh, Correct. Then there's a company which, until I read your report, I must say I was unaware of, uh, Blue Origin
1: yes so uh, Blue Origin is Jeff Bezos's Am- Amazon's company and they're uh, also trying to compete with SpaceX on the, on the three pillars basically the government contracting for satellites and and services for government astronauts uh, as well as they too seek to put up commercial telecommunications satellites, mega constellations, um, so their project is called Project Kuiper, for those mega constellations. And they also have sent um, civilians into space and, and plan to continue to do so with their um, with their uh, commercial space vehicle.
2: Right. and But they started later, right? Uh, they did, yes. And, yep. and is that, I mean, have they caught up or where are they?
1: Well, it's it's hard to say. You know, they've caught up in terms of they've done a they've done a flight
2: with with commercial participants
1: on on board. Bezos himself, and they have more flights scheduled in in the future, uh, and in you know for uh, for higher uh, paid flights. It's difficult to judge. Owen, exactly where these companies are at. And this is one of the the issues that we brought out in our report um, because they do not publicly share um, uh, a lot of details about their their vehicles or their technological capability. Most of that information is proprietary. So you really only find out when they're uh, planning a flight and publicly announce the flight.
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's very much tied up with your issue of, of um, how to regulate this whole new uh, sector, really. Uh, then there's, uh, by the way, Blue Origin, are they orbital or suborbital? They are orbital. Right. And then there's Boeing. What are Boeing doing?
1: So Boeing is, is more of your classic government contractor and has been focused on uh, government contracts for satellites um, and government astronauts for uh, a very long time. Their Starliner program is just getting into um, commercial space flight. Um, They have not sent individuals uh, up to up to space on a on a four higher basis, but they seek to compete in that area as as well. They're just a little slower than um, SpaceX and Amazon and uh, Virgin Galactic.
2: Right. And then the final one I wanted just to run through was space perspectives, which are using balloons, I presume not unlike the Chinese one that was shot down. I mean, these are very, very high balloons. But again, that must be suborbital, right? That's correct. Yep. And and so what what point have they got to? Are they taking passengers?
1: As far as our research goes, we did not consider um, them to be... Involved in in the commercial space flight in, industry right. in the
2: way that the others were, so I would say no. Yeah, uh, and I um, mean another you know, very striking fact to come out of uh, your your work on this is just how big this is. I mean, I've run through the fact that there are these you know, major companies involved, but it's employing hundreds of thousands of people right already.
1: That's correct. Um, it's a it's a multi billion dollar industry. Um, and it's predicted to grow uh, significantly Uh, mostly of course due to the use of, of satellites and satellite technology um, you know, this has pushed the industry to be to develop more and more capabilities as our need for not just standard things like weather and, but, um, and national security and defense, but also position uh, timing navigation needs, our international um, uh, banking system depends on satellites, you know, the explosive growth in telecommunications and broadband. Um, so it's really pushed the industry um, to um, to get out in front of the demand, continuing to pr- produce and, and increase the launch rate at which they can pr- put these types of payloads into orbit.
2: Yeah. I mean, the fact that there's this whole satellite industry must mean that It's possible for these companies to get revenue which can uh, be used to invest in, in taking passengers rather than satellites up. That's correct. Yeah, these
1: are for-profit companies, obviously. So, um, you know, a a significant satellite contract, uh, launch contract with with any country or telecommunications contract can produce those revenues that they can then use to develop their commercial participant spaceflight side. And, you know, there's also a significant amount of venture capital in this industry as well. Uh, Musk and and Bezos and others have put their own money behind uh, a lot. of these ventures.
2: I mean looking at the issue of regulation now we we all witnessed this uh, disaster with the submarine going to look at the Titanic after which there was a lot of comment about you know this should be better regulated and this submarine was was not up to, to standard and many people thought that beforehand and then the disaster happened so that really must have made you think that you're on the right track in terms of studying this issue of how to regulate this.
1: Yeah, well, we, I mean, that, that uh, the submarine example was obviously, a, you know, a different environment, different domain, different set of circumstances, but the, the overall concern is still there in that when you have new forms of transportation or new forms of venture seeking, however you want to put it, at what point is it necessary or at what point is it advisable? for governments to start regulating versus having these you know for lack of a better phrase barnstorming periods where com- companies are free to innovate without having any type of prescriptive standards put on them that might be costly so it's a balancing act and um, our study, what, what what the U.S. Congress asked us to do, is to try to determine, based on where the industry, where the commercial spaceflight industry is, what's the readiness level for for regulation, because there was a moratorium on regulation. So you know, without good data and without good analysis, that's a difficult question to answer. And there's also a lot of uh, value-driven normative uh, issues as well in terms of you know, how much risk do you want individuals to take even if they're well-heeled, moneyed individuals who you know, have the capability to, to seek redress uh, if something does happen.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's uh, we'll get on to that, which is a whole lot of interesting issues, as you say. But uh, just on this moratorium first, you, you, you just mentioned it briefly there. But it's a very interesting thing that the established setup for this was that there would be a, a period of very loose regulation, virtually no regulation, to allow these various companies to come up with different systems, which, you know, would... Free them up to innovate basically and have competing systems, and then uh, maybe some sort of standard system would emerge. So, I mean, are you aware of that arrangement having been used in any other sector before? Um,
1: We're not. We did not find an instance where, you know, a major uh, industry benefited from a um, statutory um, moratorium such as such as this that basically prevented the government from stepping in, in in issuing regulations or developing regulations, but for a certain condition, right? And the condition in this statutory scheme was um, the death or serious injury of of individuals. That would be the trigger point that that the Federal Aviation Administration could step in. But otherwise, the moratorium has been in place since 2004. So there have been no issued regulations to cover safety for commercial spaceflight participants. Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, um, the government sending up you know astronauts to in the International Space Station, so those those are covered by uh, NASA-developed standards, safety standards, which are actually pretty stringent and pretty strict. But they only apply to government contracts, right? So they don't apply on the commercial side. So SpaceX does have a very stringent safety standard when they're when they're ferrying um, government astronauts, but they, they the, the the standard on the other side for the commercial spaceflight participants is completely voluntary. On the part of the company right now
2: i mean i get you say that there's never been a statutory arrangement like this but there's probably a de facto arrangement like this when when airplanes began because yeah there wouldn't have been any regulation people Correct. had their magnificent flying machines as that film said and they were all experimenting and trying to come up with with an arrangement which eventually was regulated but it, it actually might have been a rather similar development path
1: that's correct. So, um, you know, a good example is, is aviation, where you had, you know, basically you had Kitty Hawk in 1903. And we really didn't see a regulatory framework in the U.S. until 1926, the Air Commerce Act. So really 23 years later is when um, you, you started uh, seeing the government step in with a statutory and regulatory regime. Um, that said, there was no moratorium. Right. So, you know, if something it, 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 if a catastrophic event um, had happened prior to 1926, you know, with, without a without a new act of Congress, the the government regulators could have stepped in. So this is different in that they're actually prevented um, from from regulating. Uh, and you need a net you need you need either the, the moratorium to expire, which it does in October, or you would need needed a, a new act of Congress to, to release the agencies from, from regulatory uh, restriction.
2: Yeah. Now, one of the arguments is that, of course, this, the companies doing the space travel have a huge interest in keeping it safe. Otherwise, no one will want to travel with them and their reputation will be destroyed and so on. And, and yet that Titanic example of the submarine does rather Show us, doesn't it, that people do cut corners. You know, if there are are no regulations, I mean, you know, one of the innovators of that actually died in in that accident. So uh, people do take risks and they do uh, cut corners in a way that, you know, may not be, according to how you work it all out, acceptable.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. Um, and, and that's really exactly the point is, you know, different companies will have different risk profiles. And when you have a voluntary regime, the company themselves gets to determine how much risk they want to take on. Um, now, a, a company may be very risky. And and that may, in fact, if there is a disaster, affect the entire industry. So that is a risk, I, I you know, based on our research. Um, You know, many, many individuals uh, that we interviewed across the domain recognized that as a risk. Um, And this was the impetus to try to develop voluntary standards among industry players uh, with the help of standard development organizations. The problem is that that process has been very slow and consensus on those standards has been very difficult. Again, getting back to your question, what and one of the reasons for that is because different companies want to be able to accept different levels of risk. And whether that level of risk is consistent with what the public would like or wants is a is another conversation that you know w- that stakeholders across the board would need to participate in.
2: We talked just briefly about airlines there. And I mean they are very interesting in that they have yeah you know, pretty good safety record and it's widely acknowledged it's been achieved through this very open system of sharing information when things go wrong, uh, which your earlier answer about proprietary information suggested to me that these space companies are maybe, you know, a bit reluctant to do that. Uh, is, is that an issue?
1: Yes, that's one of the findings that we made in our study is, um, you know, at this point, the individual companies run their own safety programs, develop their own safety standards, and the sharing across these stovepipes um, from what we were able to determine is very limited. So if there is a gap, if there are blind spots, it's unlikely at this point that, um, you know, other companies will be able to, to. Um, well, the companies themselves may not even recognize the gap or blind spot, and other companies who might, you know benefit from understanding where these you know, these gaps and blind, spot, blind spots are you know aren't aren't able to to have that information and the government's not able to have that information to look across the spectrum of the companies and say hmm you know there there might be technical or safety issues here the data being produced is very different from this other company you know we you know we want to we want to look into it to see if there's a safety gap here that is not happening because this information is is Proprietary and is uh, is guarded by by the companies themselves. So that from from our research indicates a risk. It indicates a risk that gaps may not be discovered until there is a catastrophic incident, and then you're regulating after the fact, and you may not because of the um, you know the, the 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 shock to the system. Of a catastrophe, immediate or quick regulations that get imposed may not be the optimal regulations that that you want because there, there may be this knee-jerk reaction. So uh, all of that uh, constitutes a risk um, to the industry as well as the passengers.
2: Right. Well, I mean, you probably can't use the same language as I would use to to describe the problem. Uh, so I'll do it in my version and I'll ask you in a sort of sure. tamer language. But it would seem to me that possibly the political system in America is now so corrupt. It will, you know, that lobby lobbyists have fantastic powers that they wouldn't have had 50 years ago when, let's say, the airline industry was getting underway and that governments are just weaker and would not now have the power to control uh, this kind of issue, you know, and to say to these companies, look, there's lots of money at stake, we understand, but uh, we require these standards because the pushback will be too strong. So putting it more gently, would you say that the companies are unlikely to give in to government pressure on this? Uh, I would say
1: that, you know, the, the companies, the Commercial Space Federation and, and the companies themselves have definitely pushed back um, on the ending of this moratorium. They have testified before Congress that they believe the moratorium should be extended for all the various reasons we've talked about. You know, they, they, they believe there hasn't been enough Enough launches. There haven't been enough people sent up into the space, and therefore they don't have enough data to develop standards. And you know, this was a, a pushback that's that's happened a couple times as the moratorium has come up for expiration in the past. Now, as to as to whether or not this has always been the case, I you know, it's not something we looked at. I, I would say that you know, the interest groups are always lobbying uh, government officials, you know, one way or another. On both sides, and you know the relative strength of, of interest groups waxes and wanes as across uh, across uh, different political periods and in, in administrations. So it's difficult to to point to this point, um, particular example and say that it's necessarily like another you know another domain, maritime or air or or um, another situation. Um, in, in in history but to your general point it does come down to political will what what do um, the individual voters want Congress to do in terms of allowing the moratorium to expire or is there pressure on pressure on decision makers to um, to extend the moratorium yet again I don't have the answer I don't know what Congress is going to do
0: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, but it is an interesting question in terms of democratic practice because I imagine the regulations, you know, the very tight regulations surrounding the air and the you know, airliners uh, aircraft, it, it is very very popular because you know we can all get on planes and yeah, be pretty confident we're going to get to where we want to get to sure. without a disaster. And but I imagine getting to that place now would be harder than when it when it was done. Yeah, it's, it's, you know,
1: as more people, if you, if you, if you do look at the history of the, the airline industry, you discover that as more people started to fly, you had more deaths, you had more crashes, and there was a corresponding increase in political will mm-hmm. to start developing uh, more rigid safety standards that were not voluntary, that the companies absolutely had to um, adopt. We just don't have that level of participation yet in commercial spaceflight. That is not to say that a very um, significant catastrophic inc- incident, even if there was only a few people on board, wouldn't change the political dynamic. It's certainly possible that it that it could, but it has not happened in space um, in, for space yet. You know, and the other difference, of course, is, you know, most planes are pretty much the same design, right? So it's somewhat easier to regulate a vehicle when it's you know, it's, it's essentially the, the same across the board. It's going to be more challenging um, to regulate different types of space vehicles. Um, that's going to take time. So the 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 standards development and the rule development will also take time. And this is why we um, also recommended in our report that we get started on that now, that we allow the moratorium to lapse so that the Federal Admin, uh, Aviation Administration can begin the inquiry not come out with with immediate rules. We 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 didn't we didn't um, recommend that, but to start getting the inquiry uh, uh, out there and collect the data and information that they would need to start preparing to issue rules that made sense.
2: Yeah, and and well, it, it it's yeah, it, it it is a fascinating um, thing to watch. I mean, presumably the spacecraft will converge on a, a a common design. Do you think because yeah, there will be a best way of doing it.
1: It's, it's entirely possible. We don't know. The Virgin Galactic design is very different from uh, the SpaceX mm. design. We could go one way. We could go another. We could, uh, you know, there could be divergent vehicles, I think. But to your point, the environment is the same. So, you know, you have a suborbital environment. You have an orbital environment. So the systems that you're going to need are all going to have to do the same things generally. For example, fire suppression, emergency egress. So... We refer to those, you know, types of core elements as, you know, being across the board in in our report. And so, even though you you may not develop prescriptive standards because the fire suppression system um, in one in one uh, craft may be different than in other, you might. Develop performance standards and say, okay, well, we're not going to tell you exactly where the fire suppression needs to be because your your vehicles are different, but we're going to enforce a, a a performance standard on whatever system you design that you know it has to have an error tolerance of X, or it has to you know it has to decrease the level of you know, risk of injury or death by X ratio, for example, and so that way you could it wouldn't even matter necessarily what the crafts looked like or how they were developed because they're going to perform in a way that keeps um, everybody safe pretty much in the same manner.
2: Uh, Just thinking back to what you said about, you know, catastrophic event might trigger uh, regulation. And it it made me wonder about the banking system where, you know, there was a catastrophic event. There was talk of regulation which they, they, you know, after 2008, which they then pushed back on and managed, the lobbyists managed to basically see that off. So it it, it may be that the space industry, you know, will have to accept more regulation because of the nature of their catastrophes, you know, that it is very spectacular newsworthy when something goes wrong in space, and that will build democratic pressure to get the industry better regulated. It's possible, isn't it? It is.
1: And um, certainly, you know, it's 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 difficult to imagine uh, catastrophes that wouldn't be more noticeable yeah. than than a catastrophe that that occurred in space. And, you know, particularly if, you know, individuals were, you know, in some way, you um, trapped as, as they were in the submarine, there was an inability to rescue them, or, you know, there was a, a catastrophic event, you know, that, that that brought them back into the atmosphere and, and there were no survivors. That certainly would capture the attention and that would relate to the political will, you know, r- relative to the industry.
2: Now, there's a very interesting set of issues that come up. You sort of just mentioned them earlier, normative issues, you called them, where You've got to make decisions about how much risk people are prepared to take. And one of the things that I wondered about this is whether there's a slight feeling that rich people are more capable of understanding risk than people without money, which I'm not sure would necessarily be correct, would it?
1: Well, this is one of the questions we that came up during our research, and we tried to deal with. Um, and one of the ways we wanted to try to deal with it was to look at the informed consent documentation that was that is, is being presented to the current spaceflight participants, in in you know what level of, of waiver of risk that, that 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 they were taking on. Um, again, the companies. Um, Believe that this information is not disclosable; that it's proprietary. So we couldn't, we couldn't get an assessment of you know what that informed consent regime looks like. Having said that, one can imagine that you know a very wealthy individual um, would be able to have lawyers and 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 other advisors look at an informed consent document and make a make an informed judgment as to whether it was acceptable or not. But we don't know for sure because we don't really know. We know generally what those documents have to say because there is some some regulation on it. We have to inform the individuals about, you know, prior accidents and mishaps and, and things like that. But, you know, whether or not somebody, an individual, rich or poor, is properly informed really has to be judged through an objective analysis um, and to do that, you have to look at the notifications and, and the documents and the individuals uh, involved.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just thought any informed consent form that couldn't be understood without the help of a lawyer is probably, <laughs> it's probably not very you know, sufficiently well written.
1: Well, I mean, I, you know, if, you, if we look at a lot of the, the waivers that we probably sign in, in, in our daily lives, um, there's a lot of terminology in, in them that, that you hmm. know, we, we all would probably find confusing. But, you know, those waivers are public, you know, and and those those waivers have been in many cases litigated in in court and courts have weighed in on whether the waivers are appropriate or not. This was an example that we that we cited in our report. One of one of the consistent refrains was, well, if you go scuba diving or hang gliding or you you go on a BMX course, um, you know, you're 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 taking you know, there's no regulation. And, you're, you know, you're, you're taking all the risk on yourself. And this turned out really not to be true. There are both um, state regulatory regimes in place for adventure sports, but also over the course of decades, courts have stepped in and, and they've defined what it means to be grossly negligent for a company they've they've made specific findings about you know if you're going to have a, a motocross um track track then um you need to go through that track and you need to make sure that there are no un- unreasonable impediments that might injure somebody so rules have been imposed on adventure sports uh, before and for a long time the question is you know does is that the type of regime we would want in space would we want to send somebody up in space to get killed or injured uh, and now it becomes litigated in the court and the courts have to make a decision about whether the company was negligent or whether there was an informed risk on the part of the on the part of the participant when you don't regulate something you know in many cases the courts will step in and regulate it for you based on conflict between the parties. And again, you may not get the right rules because in, particularly in space where it's a very complicated domain, courts may not have the tools to make, um, to make all the right rulings that are both protective of individuals and in, you know, allow the industry to grow. So again, another reason why we, uh, we advise that the moratorium expire so that um, the FAA can work with industry and work with other stakeholders, public and private interest groups that have a voice uh, and that want to have a voice into how these rules are
2: crafted and
1: how the risks and liabilities are balanced.
2: Yeah, That's another fascinating issue because I can see that you would think and that you seem to be recommending that officials should be the ones who help draft these new regulations that would come in if the moratorium ended. But, you know, they are subject to democratic pressure from their uh, secretaries of state or their ministers or congressmen and all the rest of it, who, again, are, are, you know, basically corrupted by lobbying, whereas judges are perhaps more independent. So even if they don't have the knowledge uh, that they might need, they would at least have a firmer moral standing, if you like, in terms of coming up with fair regulations that uh, would serve the interests of both parties. I mean it's certainly possible. I mean, no matter how you the the
1: sausage making or rulemaking works, you're not guaranteed the outcome that any particular side or interest group might want or think is just, right? There are um, there are inefficiencies, there are uh, impediments to each type of you know rulemaking, whether it's judicial. Or legislative, you know, there there have been case there have been instances on both sides where uh, both judge-made law and legislative, um, and you know, legislative statutory law has fallen short, you know, of of the mark. But you know, when that happens, you you change it. So in space, right now, you know, there's no preclusion to judge-made law. You know, um, as there, there's no moratorium on judge made law. If there was a catastrophe and individuals sued the companies, judges would make the decision. And then we would be in a position to say, okay, does, it, does this decision make sense or
2: not? And, and just in terms of, uh, in, again, informed consent and the decision to go into space despite the risks, uh, you discussed in this report briefly the distinction between an adventure seeker going into space and a scientist. Going into space, maybe a government-employed scientist doing it as part of his or her job. Talk us through that.
1: So one of the <clears throat> one of the issues that came up, and this goes to the normative issues that that have to be worked through. So we didn't we didn't specifically go into into depth on a lot of the normative issues. For example, what is a human life worth? That wasn't a question that that, that was asked, but but these questions came up. Uh, During our interviews and during our research. And one of these questions uh, was, well, look, until, you know, so one position on one side might be until we have individuals who have to go up for their job, we should allow individuals who are doing it voluntarily to take on more risk. And if you have to do it for your job, then we should regulate more because, you know, we shouldn't require you as part of your job to take on an extraordinary level of risk. And so this is argued as a trigger point for government regulation. Other individuals said, you know what, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter whether you're an adventure seeker, and it shouldn't matter whether you have, you're going up to do a scientific experiment that you're being paid to do or that you're being told to do by your employer. The, the level of risk really should be the same because at the end of the day, you have a human being. The risk factors are going to be the same uh, regardless of their background. Again, it's a normative call. Um, are you okay with adventure seekers taking on more individual risk or not? That's really something that has to be, you know, part of the, has to be weighed out in the political
2: process. The history of this seems to be that it's all taken much longer than people thought. It's been more difficult than, than, than people thought. So has the moratorium delivered, you know, this lack of regulation, this period of lack of regulation, maybe with regulations from rights from the start, it would have been even slower. And, and how do you see the industry developing?
1: You know, it's hard to go back in time and say, well, if there hadn't been a moratorium, where would we be, right? It's a, it's a counterfactual that's difficult to assess. The, the, from the industry's perspective, they believe they've gained a level of, of freedom that's allowed them to innovate during this period. And because going to space is just very complicated and very complex, as, as you as you note, the the launch rate that was predicted back in two thousand four just simply hasn't taken taken place. We haven't reached the launch rate that we thought we would. So the argument is that, well, you know, because of that, we need to continue the the moratorium and collect more data before we develop rigid uh, safety standards. Now the the counter to that is. Well, you know, companies are collecting a lot of data right now. Even though they're not sending up a lot of individuals into space, that doesn't mean that they aren't collecting uh, data on the ground through their own testing and in the limited number of flights and launches that they've had. So the question is, you know, should government regulators be privy to the information to at least make an assessment as to whether the moratorium should should continue or not? And and that's that's obviously, you know, another option that we lay out in in the in the report. This isn't binary. This you don't Congress could come back and say, well, we're gonna allow the moratorium to continue, but we're gonna have this rule and that rule, and that's gonna help us make an assessment. Or, you know, we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, um, we're gonna release the moratorium, and and we're not gonna have any rulemaking. Like Congress could say that. So there's there's a suite of options here that, that can occur, and, and we can move forward, um, you know, in in many different um, um, in many different uh, aspects.
2: And you probably weren't able to get the information to answer this question, but uh, presumably, if a Chinese company is trying to do this, it'll it, it will uh, enjoy much less regulation is that right And just a general rule very hard to say you know most space efforts you know w-
1: w- within china are you know either controlled by the government or have you know significant links to the government you know what what is what is the level of risk that that those companies and institutions are willing to take i
2: i, I don't know it's not something we looked at it's a very interesting question just then, uh, finally, when do you think it will take off? I mean, do you, do you suspect that in ten years we'll be still, you know, the very early days of this, or is is there about to be a, a breakthrough where suddenly, you know, m- many more people will be traveling in space?
1: I think again, we we, we don't have uh, hard research to answer the question with any real specifics generally, you know, space is hard. It, it It's going to take, uh, I think it, you know, most, most people think it's going to take longer, um, than, you know, than, than you might map out, um, you know, that you might map out with a set of documents, you know, this sort of this, this, you know, running joke um, uh, in in the space industry that, you know, you plan, you know, X number of years, and then um, the reality is, you know, X number of years plus 10 or X number of years plus 15. There's always, it always seems to take longer. Now that said, you know, if companies were able to um, make a dramatic leap forward in terms of reusable spacecraft, that might make a significant difference in the, in the timeline, um,
2: but we just don't know yet. Okay. Well we'll, we'll, uh, well, we'll look at it much more informed than we would have done had we not been listening to you. So thank you very much indeed for talking to us today.
1: Thank you, Owen. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.